0: Welcome back to Patrons of the Wind, the monthly podcast where we talk about whatever we feel like. I'm about to read you something written by Patrick Rothfuss. This is the introduction to the 30th anniversary edition of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. I'll admit I'm at a bit of a loss as to what to do here. If you've already read The Sandman, what can I tell you that you don't already know deep in the secret corners of your heart? You know this story is lovely and brilliant and sweet and strange you know it is beautiful and deep and wry and wondrous you know if you've already read this book you know nothing i can say is as good as what waits for you ahead so go stop reading this and go if you haven't read this book and we are perhaps standing in a bookstore or a comic shop wondering if it's worth your time what can i say to convince you should i whack for episodic get lyrical and grandiose Reference some of the story's funnier jokes so I seem more clever than I really am? No, I love this book too much. I don't want to spoil its secrets or steal its thunder. So let me tell you the simple truth, no hyperbole. The Sandman changed my life. It's not often you get to say that and mean it, but it's true. If that's not enough to convince you, I guess all that's left is for me to tell you a story or two. Because that's what I do. Stories are important, after all. I came to comics late in life. I can't tell you why. I was a voracious reader as a kid, going through pretty much every picture book in the local library until I finally started chapter books around age nine. Then I read a novel or two a day until I finished high school. Even as I slouched through college, comics simply weren't on my radar. Didn't occur to me to read them. Didn't occur to me that they might be worth reading. I had a couple thousand fantasy and sci-fi novels under my belt, and my classes were exposing me to Shakespeare and Chaucer, Sanskrit theatre, and the Harlem Renaissance poets. I read Rothka and Frost and Brooks and Baldwin, but comics? That was like Garfield, right? And superheroes? I didn't spare any thought for them, and when I did, I assumed they were, and I'm ashamed to write this now, silly bullshit for kids. I was well into my twenties when, at a weekend-long party, I sat down in a quiet corner and idly picked up a copy of The Dark Knight Returns. I read the whole thing straight through, completely lost in it, deaf to the riot and welter around me. Hours later, I hunted down the person who had brought the book. I shook it at them, angry and incredulous, demanding, Is it all as good as this? Oh no, he said sadly, but some of it is close. First, he gave me Watchmen, and it floored me, despite the fact that I didn't know superhero mythology from a hole in the ground. Next came The Sandman, and it was unlike any story I'd ever read, in any genre, in any medium. I remember thinking, can you do this? Can you have Odins and angels and fairies and witches and just everything all at once in the same story? Is this allowed? It lit me up inside. I wouldn't shut up about it. I'd give it to people and say, you have to read this. It's like Shakespeare. I blush a little now, remembering that. It's not the best comparison. It's just that back then, Shakespeare was the best thing I'd ever read. The truth is, Shakespeare wishes he wrote something this good. But let's back up a bit. I'd prefer to be fully honest here. I didn't feel that way about Sandman immediately. Not right out of the gate. I read this first graphic novel and liked it well enough. Preludes and Nocturnes is lovely. It introduces the world, the characters, there's a nice little plot. Tension, mystery, hero's journey, mythic underpinning, descent to the underworld, vengeance, recovery of self. Got my RDA of all manner of awesome here, cool. Then I kept reading and storytelling got looser, but I was still happy. Shakespeare shows up, I dig that, and there's fairy tales. And wait, are we in Africa now? Wait, is someone telling a story about a story inside a story? Okay, that's cool. I guess this series is more like a bunch of different stories, but they're all interesting, so who really cares if they don't really have much to do with one another? Then I kept reading, and there was a little plot line, and a new character or two, and and hold on, wait, does all this fit together? Has it all fit together from the beginning? Has everything been leading to an ending? Oh, oh lord, I never knew a story could be like this. I reread the series in grad school, and it comforted me at a time when I desperately needed comfort. The next semester, I used a section of it during the single brief shining semester I got to teach ancient literature. The Sandman changed the way that I thought about stories. It taught me that a plot can be gentle and meandering without being broken. It showed me the delight of a wandering way, of the seemingly innocuous stray detail. It showed me the power of melancholy. It showed me that a story about stories is not just possible, but appealing. The Sandman broadened my horizons. There were gay characters, trans characters, queer characters, and for the most part, it wasn't really that big a deal for the people in the story. Nobody really seemed to care that much. For a small-town boy from Wisconsin in the 90s, that was important. I didn't have much of that in my life, and I was a better person for being exposed to it. About four years ago, I read the series again and was surprised at how much I remembered and had forgotten. It made me cry. It always makes me cry, though, not when anything tragic happens and never because I am sad. I've played the oldest game with my children from issue number four. If I come to them and say, I am a wolf, strong-jawed, fierce hunter, they will easily counter with something like, I am a snake, poison-biting. They are naturals at it, though their tactics are occasionally unorthodox, as my elder son, age eight, likes to become a giant squid, and my younger, four, insists that he can have rocket boots. I have bought, at my count, nine complete copies of the series, most of them as gifts, some because I could not bear to go without reading the story again and a few simply because they were beautiful. I reread the series again, just now, before writing this introduction. And the story unfolded inside me like a flower. I know so much more about comics than I did 20 years ago, and I marvel at the craft displayed on these pages. There is so much story, so easy, so clear, so clean, so wonderful. And I read these stories, and I cry, and I cannot for the life of me tell you why. What you're holding here is something special. The Sandman is, in my opinion, the finest comic book ever written. If you've read it before, welcome back. Welcome home. Trust me when I say that there are still surprises here for you to find. If you're here for the first time, oh, sweet human child, come play. I envy your first steps along the winding way. One piece of advice, do stray. Taste the fruit, oh, trust me, stay. Patrick Rothfuss, July 2018. Oh, yeah. I wanted to read that here on the podcast and talk about it, not just because it's an excellent example of an introduction, how to do an introduction properly, but I think it gives us a bit of a window into Rothfuss's personal character. And I think that we can even draw a straight line from the Sandman to some of the themes and craft that he uses in the series. So I'd like to open up the floor to my co-hosts. What do you think about that introduction?
1: It feels extremely genuine. Like it's so so lovely. It gives me the warm fuzzies.
2: I I truly am a sucker for one creator who I admire talking about another creator who I admire. Um, And if you follow either of them on social media, or you've been like aware of their personal habits uh, in the last decade or so, you probably know that Neil Gaiman and Patrick Rothfuss are uh, personal friends. Uh, at this point, because they're both like very successful fantasy writers, um, and that warms the cockles of my heart. Um, but I also think that that introduction just like blows me away because it's also is, like such a well written piece of craft, you know, like it, it it is as musical and as lyrical as, uh, you know, any passage from The Name of the Wind is. Uh, and Nick, I thought you, you accentuated the literary elements of it very well, especially towards the end there. Um, and as for how it ties, as for how it might give us some clues as to how the Sandman ties into or influenced, uh, you know, the wise man's fear, name of the wind. He's, you know, he he comes out and says it basically. He says, oh, I was reading this comic that involved, you know, a story within a story within a story. I was, I read this comic that is, In some sense, all about dreams as a metaphor for how human beings tell stories and what stories mean to us. You know, I feel like that is a pretty direct influence on, you know, the major themes and the major kind of structural elements of The Name of the Wind.
1: Yes, I agree. I feel like you guys have better words for this than I do. I'm just like, pleased that these people know each other also i did not really realize the age difference between neil gaiman and patrick rothfuss like when rothfuss says in that intro that like he was kind of a young guy reading sandman it's like oh sandman was already written and like you were in your 20s what yeah
0: well, sandman started sandman coming came out, out in 87 and i think
1: so it finished like the how old would neil gaiman have been then cuz neil gaiman
2: is... i mean
1: like, I feel like he's not that much older than Roth is.
2: Well, disgustingly, Neil Gaiman was, like, in his mid-20s when he broke into comics uh, and was writing stuff like The Sandman. So he like, was he just was a like,
1: prodigy so that everything out is already out. <laughs> he,
2: he was, like, I want to say, like, 25 or 26, and he was already, like, kind of an up-and-coming writer. Uh, he had the benefit of being mentored by Alan Moore, um, which is why the early issues of Sandman are really strikingly similar to the early issues of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, I think. Um that so I think Neil Gaiman has like, you know, a decade on Rothfuss basically. If Rothfuss is like 50 now, Neil Gaiman is probably 60.
1: A cursory Google tells me that Neil Gaiman is more than a decade older? No. Yes. Yeah. He's 12 years older.
0: He is. 13 years older by my count, give or take. Depending on the month that you're looking at. (laughs) Yeah, Rothfuss was born in 73. Neil Gaiman was born in 1960.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I can see having read them both how Neil Gaiman would have been like influential on Rothfuss because, you know, they both have like a very lyrical prose style. They both are not as concerned with plot as they are concerned with other things, uh, which is something that I sometimes kind of find frustrating about Neil Gaiman. Um,
0: Well, I I think we can dive into that a little little bit because I think that's one of the reasons that Sandman works. And I was, I just, I just reread it uh, the full series and I was struck by how much more I like Sandman than pretty much any other thing of his that I've read. And that's not to say I don't like him in general because I do, but I think Sandman really, really works when a lot of his other famous prose uh, doesn't work so well. I think his short stories, by and large, are better than his novels. But I think Salmon really works because, as you say, Jeremy, he's less concerned with plot, but he's very, very good at weaving in larger themes and signifiers that kind of hint at a larger plot. Um, and I, you know, this is something that I really like, but and I'm going to try to not do spoilers for the Sandman. If you haven't read Sandman yet, what are you waiting for? Read it before the Netflix show comes out and kind of sours everybody on it because it's truly, really, truly really wonderful. But, um, the sort of the final arc of the Sandman involves tying together a ton of loose ends that you didn't realize were loose ends. And there's still a lot of open questions that it invites you almost explicitly to try and piece together, which is something I really like as, as, You may have gathered by now, faithful listener, I love close reading. I love trying to solve the puzzles that the writers put in front of us, or at least I like to treat it like a puzzle. And I think the Sandman uh, is happy to be treated that way. Maybe not all novelists, not all stories want to be puzzles, but I think the Sandman is. And it goes out of its way to not tie up every single loose end, but it does give you hints. And so you sort of are welcomed to your own interpretation of things. And I think that that may be a lesson that Rothfuss took away, not just that plot. I don't want to give the impression that I think Rothfuss doesn't think plot is important, but clearly Rothfuss learned that you can tell a story that takes its time getting somewhere and can be a lot more episodic or a lot more uh, comprised of self-contained moments as long as you, go to the effort to pepper in what Rothfuss described in his introduction as uh, little significant moments that you don't realize are significant until later. And I think there's a lot of that in name of the wind. I think that's something that we really relish exploring. And I'm sure that that is part of what is (laughs) taking book three so long is that Rothfuss is working really, really hard to uh, pull together as many of the threads as he dare and as many of the significant moments as he dare make significant without making the whole thing contrived.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, get on the subject of like plot. I think that the format of putting out a monthly comic book every month for like six years, in some sense, forced Gaiman to, to have like a, a plot in every issue. Right, whereas like it, a novel comes out all at once, you it, it can you can kind of get away with having a rambling novel. But if you're relying on your comic being you know picked up every month by your loyal readers, then they have to, on some sense, want to know what's going to happen next, right? And so even when he's telling, I think that works because he can sort of thread in the long form plots about the endless and about what's going on with Dream. Uh, and his family, and all that good stuff that we want to know about. But it also allows him to have whole issues. And at least like one of the collected editions is just a collected edition of like a bunch of issues that were all self-contained stories that take place throughout different times in history, featuring totally different characters. And they're kind of only tangentially connected to Morpheus and his family. But they are self-contained stories in and of themselves. So they still provide a satisfying reading experience. And I think he threads that needle really well.
0: Yeah. One of the things I actually, I I don't totally agree that they're they're not important. Like one of the things that I think is really great about the Sandman is that it's still really well-structured. It holds up as a whole, as well as uh, I'm sure it held up as a monthly comic. Um, for example, after sort of the first narrative arc, which is the first, you know, couple of books, it alternates back and forth between anthology and um, like a serialized. So each 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 book, which is how I um, how I consumed it initially, and how pretty much everyone will now, because I would be surprised if you can get it in issues anymore. Um, after the first narrative arc, it alternates one book of uh, anthology stories and then one book of, of narrative stories. But a lot of the seemingly incidental moments that I was talking about and that Rothfuss was talking about are in those anthology stories. A lot of those stories come back. uh, Characters from them, moments from them end up being really important. Or even if nothing, no moments or characters comes back, there's still something really important about the character that we are meant to take away from it, or at least uh, the, the world. I had a really interesting time, especially the later uh issues when it's clear that he's starting to draw everything back together i had a lot of fun going through each story in the anthology books and thinking to myself okay what's the message why did neil gaiman need to tell this story at this time what is it he's laying down here what is he telling us about the character and that's something that i think we can do in our analysis of Quoth and our analysis of the Kingkiller Chronicle, especially as we draw to a close and as we approach the second half of the book, we can start to ask ourselves, especially if it's seemingly unimportant, like the, you know, the the, the three of them telling stories around the campfire when they're going through the forest, which is coming up. Um, we can ask ourselves, why did Rothfuss need to tell us this story at this time? And I'm sorry, Jeremy, but it's not because he needed to fill 60 pages and thought it was cool. There's something important hidden in there. There was some reason he needed to tell us this story in this way. That's something that Neil Gaiman does very well in the Sandman. And that's something that uh, I think Rothfuss carries on.
2: I don't think I have ever claimed that Rothfuss has ever put anything in the book because he needed to fill page space.
0: (laughs) Uh, Jeremy, I'm intentionally misrepresenting you. You must know that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I do. But like, (laughs) come on. If anything, he's got (laughs) to cut stuff. Um. I actually wanted to toss to Jordana for a sec because I think that we we've been talking for 18 minutes about a comic book and we haven't talked about the art at all, which is. Oh, I'm so
1: glad that we're ready for this part.
2: (laughs) Which is at least half of the of the art form. Uh, And I think that a lot of media that talks about comics does a disservice by not thinking about what the art is contributing to the story. But uh, I am a relative ignoramus when it comes to art. So I thought we should toss it to our resident expert. Jordana, would you care to talk to us about the art in the Sandman?
1: Sure. Well, actually I should I should probably disclaimer that this kind of art is not my expertise. Although I like, I went to school, I studied this stuff, but it definitely is not the kind of art that I focused on in my studies. Like I didn't do my thesis in comic book style art like have I made a comic sure but it wasn't great and it was for school so by no means do i think that my analysis of this is really worthy of what it is but i i do i do love the art of sandman after having read it so it was this very strange thing that when i opened the book i and first looked at the art i was like oh no this this isn't for me i like this is like it kind of felt rough it felt unfinished It and it, like at first glance, I did not realize what they were doing. Um, And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think is it JH Williams who illustrates it.
2: Oh, not until like really late in the game. Okay, who's the earlier illustrator? The first. So the first illustrator on the Sandman was a guy named Sam Keith who quit after three issues, um, and he was replaced for the next. Like chunk. Oh,
1: so it does change illustrators. Okay, because I changes. remember reading it and being like, "Why did this change all of a sudden?" And thinking like, "Oh, they're probably just trying to show like a different style in the story." Uh, oh no! But the, it does change illustrators. I'm not going insane. The art <laughs>
2: in changes, unlike a lot of kind of seminal comic book series, uh, where uh, the series or at least the arc is defined by one artist in particular, or like an artist and an anchor working together. Uh, the Sandman goes through a lot of artists. And I think at the beginning, it was literally because, oh, no, the guy who we had quit. We need to, like, get someone else in here. So Malcolm Jones third and Mike Dringenberg were the artists who replaced Sam Keith. And they stayed on the book for, like, quite a while. And then I think eventually they would occasionally have, like, sort of guest issues. Like Charles Vess is the illustrator of the, the story where... Uh, Dream meets William Shakespeare for the first time, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably my favorite single issue of The Sandman. Um, and that's the one that won the Hugo Award. Uh, and then the Hugos changed the rules so the comics couldn't win Hugos anymore, anyway. Um, but after that, like they they change artists fairly often, but it it starts they start doing it. They I think, still
1: maintain a style though, which I think is like obviously they are different artists, but they are still very true to the narrative and you can tell that they're all doing the same thing even though they're not like, and how that, would you I describe know, that, that thing it's very it's a uh, it's like i don't messy is the wrong word because it's very smart like what they're doing is is actually really intellectual uh, but i don't have the words for it um but it the way that the art style is done it plays really well into the in into the feeling you're supposed to feel when you're reading it. So like it it's almost a little dreamy in that. Like it feels like when I first looked at the books, I thought like oh this is kind of messy, but it's not actually messy, it's dreamy. Mm. And it's something that like you don't really appreciate until you put the words and the pictures together. Did that yeah. make any sense?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. And like from my perspective, like, it seems clear to me that they started out wanting like so Sandman came out as part of DC Comics' Vertigo imprint, which is their like their imprint for grown ups who right wanted to read like serious comics. And the Vertigo imprint was started by Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Um and I I think that the Sandman owes a lot to Swamp Thing in terms of kind of its the style that it started out in, because I think it was really trying to like this is going to be another book that's in the same vein as Swamp Thing, this kind of like moody, dark fantasy horror book that's going to talk about a lot of other stuff. But we're going to draw people in with this kind of like moody, dark art and this like, you know, there's going to be like they're going to say swears and there's going to be violence. And, and it's like kind of going to be in the DC universe, but like not really, but kind of. Um, Where the
1: art style is dark, it's also, though, very high contrast, which I think is different than what I've seen of Swamp Thing. Like, what I've seen of Swamp Thing feels, like, lower contrast, generally still, like, with those deep shadows, but more... Swamp Thing is very
0: organic. Yeah, like, very organic tones,
1: and it really stays in, in the cooler tones, I think, and when it goes warm, it doesn't really go chromatic.
0: Hmm. Whereas, point of order, Jeremy. Um, sorry, uh, to interrupt you, Jordan. I'll let you get back in a second, but uh, Vertigo was actually a later edition. Vertigo was started in 1993. The first comic that was a Vertigo imprint was Death the High Cost of Living, which was, of course, the spin off mm. of Sandman. So it was, um, Vertigo, was, it was retroactively added to Vertigo, but uh, it was, uh, it was not part of Vertigo initially. That was, Vertigo was a later thing.
2: You're quite right, but I think what I can say with some confidence is that the Swamp Thing was the first mainstream comic to be published without the approval of the Comics Code Authority, uh, which is the, the self-regulating body that comics had so you couldn't like show a lot of violence or have swears or like show sex. Um, and DC found a lot of success through that. And so they started publishing other comics that were like explicitly for mature readers. So they had like, a mature readers label on them. But you're absolutely right. I think that Karen Berger's Vertigo imprint did not actually, like, become its own separate thing until the mid-90s. So, thank you for that. Jordana, please, continue.
1: Uh, Right, so I was just saying how, like, Swamp Thing has those deep shadows, but it's kind of, it's, like, like Nick said, more organic. Uh, Their warm tones are still not super chromatic, but Sandman, on the other hand, is high contrast and very chromatic in comparison. Like, there's a lot of I feel like I remembered like a lot of like really warm high saturation purples but mm. I think it was just everything was still very high chromatic which is normal for a comic
2: well, yeah, um, sorry, but because can you, it was
1: sorry?
2: because I'm a dummy can you define what you mean by it was chromatic? super colorful okay it was super
1: colorful but it doesn't feel super colorful when you first look at it because of all the shadows that are going on because of that high contrast cuz there are a lot of heavy shadows like i think like half the time when they show dream his whole body's just like a big black blob sometimes yeah
2: dream is deliberately like always drawn as like cuz all he wears is this kind of like voluminous black robe that's kind of made of stars
1: unless he's and, got his cool hat on
2: and his yeah unless he's wearing his helmet and his skin is like chalk white and then his he doesn't actually have eyes right what's in his eye sockets is like a, a void of space right it's like stars yeah so
1: pretty much every time you see dream that is like super high contrast because he's he's black and white
2: mm-hmm. and almost all of the other endless are kind of similar right mm-hmm. they're like they, they all have like very very pale skin uh you know death is like the the og like you know you know sweet lovely goth girl um but i think that you're right, in and it's like it's the kind of imagery that you like would never see in a superhero comic and nothing else on the comic book stands in 1992 or whatever would have looked like the sandman and it does have that kind of like dreamy quality where like even like the way the pages are constructed like a lot of the time instead of having sort of a rigid rectangular grid of panels the panels will be kind of like irregular shapes that flow into each other uh and i feel like that was pretty experimental for like a mainstream comic in the 90s
1: well even the way the covers are constructed feel really purposefully disjointed like not all of them but like some of them have that look to them where it's just like oh this makes me uncomfortable but i like it
2: oh yeah well dave mckean (laughs) Uh, who does a lot of the covers is super weird artist
0: yeah uh they're actually dioramas um neil gaiman posted a picture of one of them um, which I thought was incredible. Uh, but they're actually like collages and dioramas that he takes a photograph of
2: ultimately when they're set up. And
1: oh, it's, that it's makes so much unreal. sense.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we've run long, but there's one other like kind of through line that connects it all back to the name of the wind that I wanted to point out, if that's all right with my co-hosts. Do it. Please. Which is that uh, Dream, much like... It, Dream has a couple of things in common with Quoth as a protagonist. Uh, he is kind of an unreliable narrator in that he he tells us things about his life that other characters uh will like call him on it's not quite the same because he's not he's not always directly narrating the story to us but he'll say like oh yeah there was this girl who i loved and you know she done me wrong and i you know i had to like you know I had to, you know, set her straight. And then someone else in his life would be like, you are a complete dick to her. And the thing you did to her was unconscionable. What are you talking about? Um, and so he's kind of an unreliable character in that sense. And that leads me into the other thing that I think he has in common with both, which is that he can be a real dick. Like he's not always, in fact, he is often not a particularly like nice or likable person. Uh, and part of that is because he's this like, alien godlike being uh, who like doesn't really see things from a mortal perspective but other characters who are godlike beings like will point out to him like that thing you did was like really cruel and vindictive and you didn't need to do it which i think is kind of an interesting through line that you could have this sprawling fantasy story with a hero who is not your typical fantasy protagonist because dream much like Quoth. He's not like a, you know, sort of a brawny Conan the Barbarian, like warrior character. And he's not even really related to the original DC Comics Sandman, who is a guy with a gas mask and a trench coat who put criminals to sleep. He's like this sort of skinny, uh, again, very goth uh, dude who mostly solves his problems with like ironic punishments. <laughs> Uh, Well, I mean, I think what's so
0: appealing about the character is that he does change and it's slowly and it's um, perhaps kicking and screaming, but uh, it's really, and much like Quoth, it's really interesting staying with this character for a long time, even if they're not always perfect and watching how they change or refuse to change. Uh, It's really fantastic. Uh, The Sandman, currently published by DC Black Label. Uh, out now wherever you get fine comics uh, highly recommend it there's a netflix show coming up there's also uh, an audible radio drama mm-hmm. version of it that's narrated by neil gaiman he's a showrunner so to speak it has a really interesting cast uh it is apparently as good like it's basically just like a a red version of the comic near as i can tell uh, fully acted fully voiced fully uh folied so yeah uh, check that, that out if you're not a big reader
2: yeah the cast for the comic uh, sorry the cast for the audible adaptation and the cast for the Netflix show are both like crazy good definitely so check it out and
0: now we have a king killer connection so uh yeah it is now part of our purview
2: mm-hmm Uh, And you'll be close for for our next
0: our spinoff podcast, a panel of Sandman.
2: Uh, Oh wow, no! A
0: A grain of Sandman.
2: Sandman (laughs) That is not happening. That's super not happening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next month for a grain of Sandman.
2: I've been Nick.
1: I'm always Jordana.
2: I'm Jeremy. We are Paige, and this is Uh, (laughs) the way.